Turn with me again this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Read this morning, chapter 7, verse 31, uh, all the way through uh, 8, verse 13. Hear God's holy and foul word. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. After spitting, he touched his tongue with saliva and looked up to heaven with a deep sigh. He said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. His ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. He gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. In those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them. He started giving them to his disciples to serve them, and they served them to the people. He also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. They picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. Immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Probably the most difficult philosophical question there is, is called the problem of evil. That is the question of why, why evil exists, why suffering exists. It's, it's really a problem for those who believe in the true God as well. How do we hold together a good and sovereign uh, and holy God uh, together with the evil and the suffering that we see and experience in this life? Uh, no one in the world, no one throughout all of history fails to see or has failed to see the evidence for this God. Evidence for an all-powerful and and good God. But many people conclude that belief in God is simply untenable because of the existence of evil and suffering. If God healed this deaf man, as in the passage here, why not all deaf people? Or if if Jesus cast out that demon, why not get rid of all evil? 
Uh, Bill Mayer, who's a, uh, a well-known actor and comedian and host of his own TV show, uh, states that sort of challenge as an atheist um, that, that many people have for God when he says that religion is the biggest hustle. He says, why can't God just defeat the devil? In other words, if God would just defeat the devil and vanquish evil, he would prove himself to all of us. Wouldn't that be easy? Well, Christians are those who, while we can't explain or answer everything to complete scientific satisfaction, we are those who hold these truths together. The reality of, of a holy and sovereign and good and loving God, together with the fact of evil and suffering that are not God is not the author of, but He allows for a time for His purposes, um, for His glory. Uh, we are those who refuse the demanding unbelief of the world. Well, this this passage presents two responses to Jesus: one that receives all that He says and does with approval um, from maybe a more unexpected source, and then. Uh, equally unexpectedly, those who make demands of him, prove yourself, um, and respond to him in unbelief. This is really a part that sort of the first half of a larger passage that we'll, we'll continue. But next week I'm going to read what we read this morning plus more and consider all of this together, in which Jesus then warns his disciples about um, falling prey to the demanding unbelief uh, of, of the Pharisees. But the passage begins, uh, in number one in your outline, with Jesus continuing to show compassion for outsiders. We're told now, verse 31, that he went out from the region of Tyre, that's where he was, what we read last week, and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, uh, the region of Decapolis. So he's still in Gentile region, that, that, the Gentile side of the uh, Sea of Galilee. He goes through Sidon. This is not the way you would... Um, go directly. This is sort of like going from here to Denver through Fort Collins. It doesn't tell us why he, he made this giant circuitous route through more, uh, but it was through more Gentile uh, regions. Uh, in verse 32, they bring to him one who's deaf and spoke with difficulty. And then Jesus responds. I want to just note a few things about Jesus' response here in verse 33. Uh, first, it says he took him aside from the crowd by himself. It doesn't say why Jesus did that uh, exactly, but we might suppose that Jesus is treating him as an individual. Uh, not just one of the crowd. He could have just healed him quickly and gone on to the next person, but he takes this man aside and treats him individually. Um, shows him undivided attention, maybe allows the man to give his full attention to Jesus as well. And then it says, uh, maybe somewhat seemingly strangely, he put his fingers into his ears and spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. Uh, why did Jesus spit and touch the man's tongue with his saliva? I don't know. I don't have a good, <laughs> have a good answer uh, for that. Um, uh, but it must have had some significance to this man, um, maybe some cultural significance to it as well. We can say something, though, about the intimacy of this and, and Jesus touching the man. This is something that Jesus does often with those that he helps. Um, and, and it's something that could easily not have been recorded. Maybe it doesn't seem to be a very important point, but it is for, for Mark writing his gospel. He tells us over and over again about Jesus touching those that he helps, and, and especially those who 
he might have been expected never to touch lepers and women and, and, and such. So back in chapter 1, um, Peter's mother-in-law, Mark notes, he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And then the leper, later in that chapter, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. And Mark chapter 5, the, the little girl says, he took her by the hand and said, little girl, arise. Uh, the next miracle that we'll read uh, next week, uh, the blind man, again, uh, chapter 8.23, it says he took him by the hand. Verse 25, he laid his hands on his eyes. So again and again, Mark is noting that Jesus touches these people. And, and I think part of the lesson uh, in this for, for you is that no matter who you are or what you have done or um, how you feel about your past, or uh, Jesus identifies with you. Jesus identifies with sinners, with unclean people, uh, people with uh, embarrassing pasts or pasts that others wouldn't want anything to do with. Jesus identifies with you in, in suffering, in sin, and so on. Um, they were told this man also that not only can he not hear, he, he spoke with difficulty or could hardly speak, something like that. Um, this is the only time that word is used in the Bible, uh, with the exception of one, uh, if, if we are talking about the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there's one other use of this word there uh, in Isaiah chapter 35. Uh, this prophecy of what God would do for his people one day says this, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf, the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and here's where the same word is, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And the only other time we find that word is Jesus loosing this man's tongue, if you will, giving him speech again. And even more interestingly, in Isaiah 35, in that context, the chapter begins by saying that these things will happen for Lebanon, for the people of Lebanon. This is where Jesus has been. Tyre and Sidon are right in the middle of Lebanon. Um, then says that Lebanon would one day see the glory and the majesty of God and would come with the ransomed people of God to Zion with singing and joy. Jesus heals this uh, man, um, and he now can sing uh, and speak with joy. So Jesus is, is continuing to model for the disciples and model for you, uh, not just compassion for this individual, but compassion for, for outsiders. Those who are outside of Israel, people we might not think are ripe for or likely to receive the grace and the truth of God. This is an extension of what we read last week of Jesus' interaction with and uh, the, the Syrophoenician woman and his lesson for the disciples in that. This woman that in Matthew's account, again, the disciples said, send her away. And then Jesus showed compassion and, and helped her and welcomed her. Uh, Jesus models, teaches compassion and love and hope for every person that you come in contact with. You can probably think of people, maybe people you know. You think they will, they will never believe the gospel. You know, they'll never give up their way of life. They'll never acknowledge their need. Um, they'll never acknowledge their sin. They'll never believe in God. And that, that will be true for some, sadly. But God delights to save many people like that. Um, and to use your love and your faithfulness to draw people to himself. So uh, have that hope and that compassion for anyone and everyone. Jesus goes on 
Uh, to continue these lessons in chapter 8, then, we'll look at this uh, again more closely next week, but um, again, there's large crowds that have been with him for a time, and in verse 2, Jesus says, I feel compassion for the people, because they've remained with me three days, have nothing to eat, and of course he goes on to feed them miraculously again. We're told there are 4,000 here, it's very much like the feeding of the, the 5,000, only there we were told specifically it was... 5,000 men plus women and children. Here it's 4,000 people. So they're, they're rather different numbers, but both uh, incredible miracles. This time it seems that he's in the region of Decapolis, that this is a miracle he did among the Gentiles. Thousands of Gentiles flocking to Jesus. And he does a miracle of feeding them as well. And many have pointed out um, over centuries that this shows us Jesus bringing bread to the Gentiles, to the nations, uh, as he had done previously for the Jews, shown himself to be the one who brings bread, who gives bread to his people in the wilderness. He does here the same for the Gentiles. Um, commentator Edwards writes this, The journey to, uh, of Jesus to Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis proves that although the Gentiles are ostracized by the Jews, they are not ostracized by God. No one is beyond the compassion of Jesus. He's the one who provides bread, who provides uh, life to all the world. And then uh, thirdly, just want you to see uh, the, the summary response that Mark gives us right in the middle here of this Gentile region. How he summarizes their response to Jesus' ministry. Um, the, and the, remember again, because we'll look at the contrast in a moment, these are the people who are not serving a true God. Right? They, they rejected him and warred against God and his truth for millennia. And yet, look at verse 37. It says, They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He's done all things well. You just think about that, that confession. What an important confession that is for believers. As we try to hold together the, the incredible evidence of God's grace and his power and his creation together with, with struggling and suffering, um, We'll either conclude that God doesn't actually exist or with uh, Richard Dawkins that he's an egomaniac or just incompetent or that God's purposes are beyond us but they are good, even perfect. That he does all things well. We must not doubt him. We don't need to counsel him or make demands of him. We can trust that he does all things well. Uh, Jesus himself models that kind of faith in God the Father uh, in Gethsemane, particularly, right, just before his death. Right? He's anticipating his uh, excruciating death and unimaginable suffering under the wrath of God. And his prayer is, not my will, but yours be done. Essentially, you know, we could paraphrase that, Father, this is awful, I don't want to go through this, but you do all things well. It's your will. Uh, James, in the book of James, calls us to that kind of humble trust in our prayers, teaching his readers to pray, Lord, if you will, if it's your will, I will do such and such, or I, I desire such and such. Let's contrast it with the next scene, where Jesus, uh, number two on your outline, goes back, if you will, to the insiders, 
of those who had God's promises, had God's word. In verse 10, uh, he, they got in the boat, they come to the district of Dalmanutha, they're in uh, the western, the, the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee again here. And he meets with the Pharisees, and in, by contrast, the Pharisees are those who are known as the most outwardly scrupulous followers of, of God and his word among the people of Israel. But we're, we're given immediately these, these three indications of their animosity against Jesus. They come out and begin to argue with him. But the end of that verse, to test him. And in the middle there, it says they're, they're seeking from him a sign. That word uh, seeking doesn't mean simply looking. It, it has uh, more um, a nuance in the way Mark uses that word repeatedly. And every single time he uses that word in his gospel... Uh, it, it's someone who's trying to control Jesus, who doesn't understand him, is trying to redirect him or trying to control him. So even back to that, we talked about this word back in chapter 1, uh, when it was used of the disciples. Right? Jesus had gone off to pray during the night, gone off to be by himself and to pray as he needed to do. And we're told his disciples were seeking for him. Not just looking for him, but when they found him, they said, Jesus, what are you doing here by yourself? You're wasting your time, the, the crowds are still looking for you. Come put on a show. And Jesus said, no, I, I need to be with my father. So again, here's someone trying to redirect him. They're looking for, it says, a sign from heaven. Uh, what are they looking for? Uh, well, a, a sign, this is not the same word as miracle. It's, it, the word is not interchangeable with miracle in the Gospels. Um, as if the, the Pharisees were unaware of Jesus' miracles or hadn't seen them or heard of them. Uh, they're looking for something that they would deem satisfactorily confirming of his authority. Uh, a fire from heaven, or I, I don't know what was maybe on their minds, but it was by their definitions, by their standards, of course, believing that he, he can't deliver. He's not going to meet their demands. Um, they're testing him to trap him. What's Jesus' response? Verse 12 says he sighed deeply in his spirit. He sighed deeply. Maybe a little bit more helpful translation would be something like he groaned in his spirit. He groaned. This is a word, another word, this is the only use of it in the entire Bible. Um, it's actually a very rare word in, in all of Greek, ancient Greek literature. Um, but it always indicates great dismay or even despair. Um, one person writes of, of this word this way. It's always used to describe persons who find themselves in situations where they are pushed to the limit of faithfulness. This is a, this is a real test of Jesus' faithfulness and humanity here to putting up with this kind of challenge. Jesus has done incredible, impossible things by the power of God. He's presented and proven himself to be from God in countless ways at countless times, and yet they demand something more, something different from Him. He groans with, with weariness over this. A, a sort of holy exasperation, I think, on Jesus' part. We have to try to try to dig into the experience of Jesus a little bit here to, to understand this. He is God Himself who, who incarnated himself, who, who abased himself unthinkably in love, and the greatest miracle uh, possible, the incarnation. 
revealing himself in power and compassion and teaching to people who deserve none of this. Putting up with sinners who essentially cross their arms and say, that's not good enough for us. Imagine a, imagine a cockroach telling you he doesn't believe in you, you know, right before you pull the trigger on the canon raid or something like that. Compare this to God's response to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Uh, in Exodus chapter 33, when they rebelled again and again, despite God's miraculous grace to them, God says to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I would go among you, I would consume you. These passages communicate, they ought to drive us to think, How can God possibly put up with this? How can He put up with us? We just don't understand how holy He is and how slow and foggy and selfish and prideful we are in our sin. Well, Jesus doesn't consume them. Uh, He doesn't meet their demands either. He says, truly I say to you, that's an emphatic statement, no sign will be given. No sign will be given. It's a a flat rejection of their, uh, their request. Jesus owes them nothing. And Jesus repeatedly in the Gospels refuses those who do not, who will not believe or testing him or trying to manipulate him or uh, reject his claims. Just compare his trip to Nazareth that we looked at a number of weeks back. His hometown, where people knew him well and yet thought it was ridiculous, the claims that he was making. And so what does Mark say there in, in chapter 6? He could do no miracles there. He didn't do any miracles for the people in his hometown. He could have, he could have impressed them. Right? But they didn't believe They had no faith in who he was. Uh, Think of then the end of his life. His questioning before the Sanhedrin and other leaders just before his death. Uh, Unbelieving, um, uh, accusing, uh, trapping, questioning. What what was his response over and over? Nothing. He said nothing. Again, it illustrates... Well, it teaches us that God will not respond to our demands of Him. God will not bow to your demands of Him. The fact that He does all things well is for you to acknowledge, not to stand in judgment over. It illustrates the fact, again, that you will not believe what God does if you don't believe who He is, what He says. Uh, Even if someone should rise from the dead, as you saw in the parable a few weeks ago, Jesus said, Unbelief needs to be conquered by the Holy Spirit, by the, by the grace of God. Um, and from our perspective, it's only overcome through a humble seeking of God, not standing in judgment over Him. Acting defiantly as if you are God and making demands of Him will only confirm you in, in your unbelief. You see that pattern again and again in the Scriptures. You, you don't define what reality is for God. You don't decide what constitutes sufficient evidence Don't hold subservience to Almighty God, your Creator, hostage until He meets your demands. But here's the main lesson that I want you to see. That this displays also how patient, how gracious God is. 
how patient, how gracious Jesus is. You know, to imagine what you would do to a defiant cockroach spitting in your face doesn't even begin to be a fair parallel here between the defiance and the demands made of uh, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Uh, Jesus does not respond to demands. He owes nothing. He, he will judge one day, but he will never cease to respond in patience to your humble requests. And God grants through faith and trust and through the work of His Holy Spirit and His means of grace, His, His Word and our prayers, what, what can't be gained merely by reason or, or scientific investigation or demands. So finally, just and just briefly, I want to conclude asking what is your response? We've seen these two contrasting responses to Jesus this morning. Maybe you're holding back from full faith, full trust in God. Maybe there are hard things in your life that have caused you to doubt His goodness. Maybe the church has disappointed you or hurt you in some way. That's the experience of many people, sadly. Maybe you have doubts or questions that are unanswered. I want to urge you this morning to bring these things humbly to Jesus. That's... uh, what we'll continue to see and learn next week as we consider this this broader passage. Bring these things humbly to Jesus. Not because all your questions can be answered scientifically or precisely or satisfactorily in this life. They, they certainly won't be if you turn away from God. But He will give you greater understanding. He'll open your ears and your eyes as Jesus illustrates literally in this broader passage, he'll give you peace and hope and joy and trusting him fully. We confess he does all things well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word and uh, the example here of uh, your compassion patience and long-suffering through the Lord Jesus, for your compassion uh, for anyone who comes to you in uh, humble faith uh, and confesses that you do all things well and is eager to learn from you. Uh, Lord, let us take the the warnings and the uh, comforts and encouragements from this passage to heart. Think about these things and apply them to our lives, uh, to our faith. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.